1: This very special edition of the Bears Talk Underground is brought to you by MyBookie. The truth is, guys, I don't know who's going to win week in and week out, but if you think you know, you got to check out MyBookie. Remember, who you're betting on is just as important as who you are betting with, and that's why I always tell people, you got to go with MyBookie. Trust me, they are your best bet uh, this season. They have been in business for years, they have great reviews online, and their mobile site is so easy to use. That's why I'm urging you to make your way to My Bookie. You win and they pay. What could be better than that? They have in-game live betting, over unders on fantasy points scored, and the most rewarding player perks in the business. And here's where it's getting good. My Bookie is currently being slammed with new betters and wants to give everyone the best possible service. If you're willing to make a deposit after seven PM Eastern, they will give you an additional. $25 in free play on deposits over a hundred dollars. And how about that? Join now and my will match your deposit dollar for dollar. So you double your money. Use promo code bears 25 to activate the offer. Visit MyBookie online today. That's mybookie. M Y B O O K I E. And don't forget to use the promo code bears 25 when creating your account to claim up to a thousand dollars in free play. And if you're willing to hold out until after 7 p.m., you can get that extra $25 free by using the promo code BEARS25. So it's up to you guys, but I'd wait until after 7 to get that extra cash. So my bookie, you play, you win, you get paid. And now, (laughs) I couldn't be more excited about this. This very special edition of the Bears Talk Underground is in fact an interview with a New York Times best-selling author in Jeff Perlman uh you know I've been talking about doing this show for a couple of weeks I finally got him um on the phone uh to to do the interview very very excited uh to do this so no fancy open no big loud speecher or anything like that I'm very excited had a wonderful conversation Uh, with Jeff. We spoke for just over an hour. We talked about the USFL, the crazy stories that came out of that league. Uh, We did dabble a bit uh, in sweetness, kind of like somewhere, I think about three quarters of the way through the interview, we talked about Walter Payton uh, and that book uh, for about five minutes or so, maybe a little bit uh, more. So not a whole lot of sweetness talk in there, but we did, uh, uh, did get that out of him for a little bit. But overall, a great conversation. I really hope you guys enjoy it. Without further ado, it's myself and Jeff Perlman talking about football for a buck, the crazy rise and crazier demise of the USFL. And uh, with me to, to help and, and uh, to, well, not help, but to, to talk about this this amazing new book of his. Um, uh, football for a buck—the crazy rise and crazier demise of the USFL. Uh, Jeff Perlman, Jeff, thanks so much uh, for coming on the show.
2: Oh, come on, it's my pleasure.
1: <laughs> you know, Jeff, I—I I, honestly, I, you know, just this—we just started talking a few moments ago, and and I feel like the the guy that's that's known for the last couple of weeks, he was about to accept an award and has been writing this speech that he can't wait to get in front of people, and then the moment he gets on the podium, he chucks the speech and just starts shooting from the hip here because i've got a list of questions things i want to talk about but the first thing that came to mind when i got you on the phone was the sort of urban legend about the usfl that i didn't really know until i read the book which was that you know the common misconception is that one of the things that killed the usfl was that it it went to or it was going to move it moved to the fall i never realized until i read the book that usfl never made it
2: to the fall yeah it didn't even uh it was a really stupid plan, and I would say the idea of moving to the fall was a big part of the ruination of it all. Um, you know, if it's maintained sort of the steady growth pace and stayed in the spring, the whole idea of USFL was spring football, and it was a good idea. And then uh, I won't say his name, but some kind of imbecile comes along and convinces everyone they should move to fall. And You know, I didn't write this. I always say, I say this every interview I do almost. I, this is not a political book. I didn't write this book because of Donald Trump. When I pitched the idea, I had no idea Donald Trump would be president. Um, So sometimes when people hear me say, oh, you know, Donald Trump ruined the league, it comes off as some sort of political thing. And it really, it actually, I think he's a lousy president, but it has nothing to do with him as a president. It just, there was a football league that I loved and that sort of made my childhood much more enjoyable. And because of greed and arrogance, some guy came along and kind of ruined it. So that's where that comes from.
1: Right. He wasn't alone in, in ruining the league, but he definitely led the charge
2: yeah he was the Pied piper and i mean you see it it's it's really interesting it's one of his talents and one of his horrible flaws which is he is one of the all-time all-time great con men and when i say that it sounds purely negative in a way it's not totally like he's very good at convincing people that his way is the right way you know he really is it's, it's a remarkable thing where I've said this a million times, and I truly believe it. I'm not being sarcastic. Donald Trump could go to the bathroom in a bag. You could see him go to the bathroom in the bag. He can tell you it's actually chocolate, and you would pay money for it. Right,
1: right. And and this con man somehow managed to get 60 million of us to, to vote him into the White House.
2: Don't say us. It wasn't me
1: so let's uh so now that we've jumped to the started at the end let's go back to the um beginning (laughs) and um i want another thing i was surprised to learn was that the origins of the usfl dated all the way back to the to the 1960s or at least the idea of the league did
2: yeah well there's a guy named david dixon out of new orleans and he was an art dealer he had a lot of money and he loved football and he really wanted a team to come to the city uh, to the crescent city and and um the NFL showed no interest in New Orleans, so he decided, "I'm going to start my own league." And then the Saints came. Uh, New Orleans got the Saints, and that was kind of it for a while. But he, he always had the idea because the idea was really good: spring football, uh, not competing head-to-head with the NFL, not really even competing for players with the NFL. Um, going to have regional drafts, so you know, conceivably a team in. You know, wherever, if you have a team in Tampa Bay, they're going to be getting players who, who played college and high school in Florida. So fans are going to want to see these guys continue their, their growth. Um, and the idea was great. So in the 80s, he sort of just had the itching and had never left him. Um, and that's really the origins of the USFL, is this guy who always believed in the idea of spring football, put it off for a long time, and then finally acted on it and had a lot of wealthy men who were also interested.
1: Right. And, and then, you know, the, the, that's one of the first, that's I think like the first story in the book. And then the next story in the book doesn't really have to do much with football, but just kind of let you know what you were in for as far as the chaos that was about to ensue. Tell me about a guy named Albert C. Lynch.
2: Ah, so great. Now that many people ask about him actually, because the, I mean, you've read the, you read the book, right? You read the whole book. Cover to cover. I mean, they're, you know, I've never read a book with more stories, like more uh, preposterous, outlandish, insane stories. And Mm -hmm. somehow Albert T. Lynch has got lost a little bit. And he's such a good story, which is early on the Chicago Blitz, they were, they really sort of began the modern uh, combine system where they would bring in, they auditioned thousands and thousands of football players, more than 3000. They, they jumped the gun before other teams started uh, looking for players. So, they were traveling the country basically saying, come try out for the Chicago Blitz if you've ever dreamed of playing football. And, you know, they were getting – my favorite is they are getting letters from all over the country from different colleges saying they have this guy and that guy and semi-pro teams. And they got one letter from a guy who he was a defensive back at uh, Georgetown College in Kentucky, and he bragged about having eight interceptions, and he spelled it E-N-T-E-R instead of interception. I <laughs> thought that was very really funny. So one of the guys – there was a guy named Albert C. Lent, and he was listed as a linebacker. And I think he was 5'8". He ran a really slow 40. He had no skills in football whatsoever. But he was at it was at a soldier field. It was a trial at soldier field. And he noticed that of the few players who were being kept from this cattle call, uh, they would go into these stands, and they would be greeted by Bruce Allen, the team's general manager. He's now the GM of the Redskins. And um, he would sign them to a contract. And he noticed... Every now and then, a really good player would go into the stands and sign this deal. So Albert C. Lynch, who was anything but a good player, sort of just walks into the stands and he signs a contract. And afterwards, Bruce Allen is meeting with the coaches and one of the coaches says, why did you sign Albert C. Lynch? And Bruce Allen's like, well, you sent me Albert C. Lynch. And he's like, I certainly did not send you Albert C. Lynch. No, you sent me Albert C. Lynch. And suddenly they realize that they've been had by Albert C. Lynch, the least likely guy to ever sign a contract in pro football.
1: Just, just like he just decided to walk over there, and the next thing you know, he's on the roster of the. show it was funny. Wins. It was
2: funny. It was funny because different guys I interviewed, sort of separately from each other, mentioned Albert C. Lynch, and there was like, "Oh, did Mark tell you about Albert C. Lynch? Did Bruce tell you about Albert C. Lynch?" Like they love the story of Albert. The thing about the u.s of cool course these guys all still tell the stories and love the stories. It's like almost like mythology, or talking about some fraternity you were in in college. You know they. The Albert C. Lynn story evokes a lot of joy in from the Chicago Blitz.
1: Sure, sure. Speaking of the Chicago Blitz, thanks to the Chicago Blitz and the and the book, I learned something else I didn't know. See, I grew up in the Chicagoland area. Uh, I went to Evanston High School. And oh, nice. in our conference as a kid, we had Maine South, Maine East, Maine West. Oh. But there was no Maine North. I, I thought that maybe it was something that never existed. Thanks to your book, I know know. There was a main north, and it used to be the headquarters of the Chicago Blitz.
2: Yeah. And in 1984, when the team was really bad because, I mean, a whole bunch of circumstances, um, that is where the Breakfast Club was being filmed and the John Hughes movie. And at the time, the Blitz had nothing going for them, they had no money. They were just a preposterous joke of a franchise. But uh, their players and staffers would get the free, the extra food that the Breakfast Club cast and crew did not eat. So they actually eat pretty well, thanks to the breakfast club being filmed at the facility. (laughs) Uh, There are truly, I mean, I'm being serious about this. Like, and I don't care if this sells a book or not. Like, the thing that brings me joy of this whole thing is the the just, someone will bring up a story to me, like you just said, Albert T. Lentz or or Maine North High School. And and I haven't even talked about that. Like, that's how many insane stories, preposterousness the USFL brought forth. It was everything I wanted it to be because it was just so ridiculous.
1: Well, I mean, that, that's what drew me to the book. I mean, initially, I was interested because of the subject itself, the USFL. I was a little guy when the when the league was in existence. Five, six, seven years old is when the right. USFL was around. Um, I saw the 30 for 30 documentary that came out a few years back and really enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. And I was interested when I heard about the book. And then when you started popping up in all the podcasts that I listened to and the stories you were telling, I was like, I have to read this book because right. if the book is anything like the stories you've been telling it's going to be amazing from start to finish and as many interviews as you have done and as many stories as you have told you barely scratch the surface of what's actually in the book
2: yeah it's actually interesting so mike toland who did the 30 for 30 is, is a friend of mine i've not, i've known mike for a long time and i thought that 30 for 30 i love and i have a dvr and i've watched it probably 20 times but he only had it whatever it is probably 45 minutes with commercials to tell that story Right. And I just thought it's way too short to tell, you know, you, you can only, how many stories can you get in 45 minutes TV show? So the the joy of the book is I could sort of elaborate and expand and tell a million more of them.
1: Yeah. It was very much uh, compared to your book. Of course, it was more of a, a, a surface uh, telling mm-hmm. of the, the story of the USFL. And you were able to, to dig deep into the, uh, into the history of the, of the league and, and, uh, the, the rise and fall, uh, as you, as you call it in the, in the, uh, in the title there. Um, let's talk about the San Antonio gunslingers, uh, Best because ever. pretty much you, you dedded, ded, basically dedicated an entire chapter to this team. And the like opening sentence of the chapter was I could write a book on the gunslingers and it would be 5,000 pages long. I mean, and after reading that chapter, I, I, I want to read that book, Jeff, you have to do it.
2: Oh man. This is what I love about the gunslinger. First of all, I could have written a book about the gunslingers and it would have been, nobody would have bought it because it's so obscure. I mean, the USFL is obscure. The gunslingers are, you know, a thousand times more obscure than the league itself. But um, I love how I've been asked about them a million times. People always wonder about the gunslingers and no one even brings up the fact that they were coached by a guy with seven fingers who lost three of his fingers in a a lawnmower accident who... (laughs) was in the early onset of dementia and coached from the stands with binoculars and a, um, and a walkie talkie sitting next to his wife because he thought he had a better view. Like that's how crazy the gunslingers are. That's like detail number 800 of the weirdness of that team.
1: Yeah. From their, uh, from their painted turf that, that everybody in the book seemed to have stories about how they've, they've, they've still got scars or burn marks or something like that from the way that that field was painted.
2: Yeah. Well, they used, um, Industrial spray paint instead of there's a kind of paint that you're supposed to use to paint a field But the team was really cheap. So they would use the cheap industrial spray paint So guys talked about the the AstroTurf was super thin anyway, and it was on top of a slab of concrete so um, So they would slide on the field and they would not only get the burns from the turf But then they would get the paint in the burns. So they'd be taking showers Uh, there was a LA Express wide receiver named Jojo Townsell Who's telling me stories of the time they played there? And Steve Young was their quarterback. And Steve Young sliding on the turf and getting this burn across his leg, and then in the shower later, just screaming his head off, you know, from the paint sort of burns on his body.
1: Yeah, that was a <laughs> that was a rather interesting story about. You have to get this off, but it's the most excruciating thing in the world to try to to try to do it. You have to clean out this wound to get the paint out of it, but there couldn't be anything more painful uh, to to try to do.
2: Yeah, why can't I mean, I mean those those uh, those cuts gotta hurt enough just from the turf, but the right. idea of having the spray the other I mean they're just like, I mean I could the gunslingers I really I could sit here for two hours and tell you gunslinger stories, but like the owner Clint Mangus was this this corrupt sort of land and oil guy, and he was convinced that his his ranch hand buddy should be the punter on the team, right. so they actually signed him to punt the team Buddy Roberts he hadn't punted for 17 years since he played at Freer High School. And he shows up, and he needs four steps just to get a punt off. But And the coach is like Jim Bates, who later coached for the Dolphins, is like, um, I don't want this guy. And Clint Mangs is like, you have to have him. So they bring him to Portland. He's supposed to be the punter. Um, I, yeah, and uh, he's supposed to be the punter. I just want to say my wife, my uh, my daughter's sitting here, and she actually wrote me a note, and she said, I thought when you said the coach had seven fingers, you meant on one hand. <laughs> <laughs> No, two hands. Um, it's funny. So, you know, so the punter comes on the road trip to Portland, and he's the, the ranch hand, and he's as embarrassed as everyone else. He knows he doesn't belong there, but the, the boss tells him to go, and they basically hide him on the sidelines so he doesn't get in the game. But they also signed the they were gonna do a They did a contest, a punt, passing kick contest yeah. to, um, to sign a player, and they were going to give the person a contract. They were going to give the guy a contract, and the, person, the guy who ends up winning is a, is a woman named Julie and they decide they can't be the – they sign her to a contract, but they can't put her on the field. I mean, just the Gunslingers are the best. Everything about them is the best. Their, GM, their GM's prior experience was running a feed store. He was a 71-year-old Korean War veteran who wore a suit every day to work, and they, they, their offices were um, trailers in the parking lot of Alamo Stadium. And when they stopped paying players, the players would show up demanding their money, and you'd climb out the back window and drive off. Wow. That's... <laughs> They're the best the best team of all time
1: yeah i mean it's and then of course the um when um your favorite player that you've talked about in pretty much every interview that i've listened to of yours be, was first day with the i can't I'm, i can't believe i'm forgetting his name right now but he's the friend that Field. punched out his there you go greg fields punched out his coach with the la express locked himself into in a hotel room because he didn't want to get cut by the atlanta falcons and then the coup de gras was running down the coach, or excuse me, the owner of the gunslingers who had stopped paying his players towards the end of the franchise.
2: Yeah, he was the best, and actually, I would say my best moment, maybe in my reporting career, is so he was crazy. Uh, the L.A.C. punches coach of the Express. The, he started calling in death threats to the Express. The Express hired Liberace's bodyguard away from Liberace to protect the team. He's showing up at practices. He's showing up at games with a gun. Then the gunslingers sign him. And, um, you know, with the gunslingers, he's, he he stops getting paid, so he follows the owner home. The owner gives him 17000 in cash to go away. And then no one knows where he is. Like, no one can find him. He's totally vanished off the face of the earth. I call Grambling, where he went to college, nothing. I ask teammates with the Baltimore Colts, nothing. But I find two addresses. So I take my 9-year-old son on a road trip to San Francisco to track down Greg Fields, a homicidal football player. And... <laughs> We're walking all day through the streets of San Francisco because I thought it would be a fun project for me and my 9-year-old kid to go on. And um, my daughter, who's sitting here, knew better than to go on the hunt for Greg Fields where my son was dumb enough to come along. And we're walking and walking and walking. We end up in, like, deep in, like, this really bad area of San Francisco. We're walking, you know, under bridges that smell like piss, and we're walking through the fields with shattered glass. And we get to the one house, and there's nobody there to, abandoned. And the other address, I leave Emma with some friends, my son, and I get it's it's sort of in the projects, and I knock on the door, and his sister answers, and she said, "Well, I'll, give, I'll try to give him your number." And 24 hours later, me, and my son, and Greg feel Sacramento, California, eating ice cream at Cold Stone Creamery in a shopping mall food court. It was the best moment of my life.
1: Spitting cherry ice cream all over you.
2: My daughter just looked at me again because I said it's the best moment of my life. So let me add by saying, after the birth of my first child, my lovely daughter.
1: <laughs> of course, and. um so I mean, let's let's talk about you know the 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 moment in the book where I realized that the the league might have been doomed, uh, and it was the 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 first championship game uh, of the league. It was Michigan and Philadelphia. Yeah. The the stars and the Panthers. Yeah, yeah, nice. Panthers job. Yeah. playing in this in this championship game. They got a very de- they got a decent crowd. It was in Denver, correct?
2: Yeah, it was great. It was a great. I know exactly what you're talking about, and I just want to say again, like. This book is so insane with stories that this story gets overlooked, and it's like the best. This would be the best story in a million books I've written, but it's not even properly top 30 in this book, which is the USFL needs a great game. It's a first season. It's been up and down. They need a great game. They need, And they get a huge turnout. It's a beautiful day in Denver. The game is actually a great matchup. The best teams in football in the USFL, both of those teams could have played in the NFL, I truly believe, and, and most people also agree with me on that. You had Sam Mills starting a linebacker for the Stars. You had Bobby Hebert, quarterback, Anthony Carter, wide receiver for the Panthers. It's this brilliant game. They have their definitive moment late in the game where Anthony Carter catches a pass and streaks down the field and raises the ball in the the air. It's just a beautiful moment. Um, And at the end of the game, Bobby Hebert, great quarterback, is the MVP. And the press box are super happy. But on the field, fans start storming the field. Um, And what happened is before the game, the USFL allowed Miller Beer to have a free beer giveaway in the parking lot. It's such a USFL thing. So all the fans are sloshed out of their heads by the fourth quarter. They decide they're going to storm the field. So about 1,500 to 2,000 fans are storming the field trying to take down the goalposts. This is with a minute and a half left in the game. And the Denver police are under very, very, very strict orders, don't let anyone touch the field. So these fans are storming the field. And you have in the press box, like, the USFL PR people you know, triumphantly handing out their releases. Bobby Abare will be available afterwards. And all of a sudden on the field, police are macing the fans and they're letting dogs loose on the fans. So they're like, this is the greatest moment in U.S. about history. Oh my God, what's happening on the field? And fans are just being attacked and pulled off in the next day's headlines. I still have in my head a very vivid memory of the, and and I saw it for the research, the New York Post, Steve Serby, who was a young reporter at the time, went on to a great career, was sent out to write about this game. And the whole photo and lead for his story is about fans being maced and and eaten by dogs. It was a very USFL moment.
1: Yeah, and, and the the fact that this amazing game, this championship game for the USFL, was was barely a was barely a footnote in this story about uh, a riot where a football game broke out at one point or something like that. It was it was just you know it like amazing. It just seemed like the league was snake bit from that moment. Their most oh. triumphant moment overshadowed by the fact that police were macing uh fans and releasing dogs
2: wait but i also love again so this again this is, this is like 90th in the in the book but like so that week the usfl was feeling really good about this championship game and they actually in order to draw media members they gave them rental cars they rented cars for the media that week and a lot of outlets took them up on it well that just ha- and it was in denver so they had this whole week lead up to the game in Denver. And it just so happened that during the week, John Elway, who was a rookie at that point, came to terms with the Denver Broncos. So all these, all these reporters using USFL paid-for cars are called by their, their desks, whatever newspapers they worked at, and told, you've got to get up to the, to the Broncos camp, ASAP. Elway just signed. So the USFL is thinking they're brilliant with this idea to give everyone cars, and all their cars are being used to report on the NFL
1: and like you said this is 90th in a story of a, of a with a book about a thousand different uh stories in it um one of the other ones was was more of a uh i was impressed that you know with your research that you were able to find out how um um george allen liked his oatmeal like how do you find out something uh, like
2: that well because that was a story that a lot of guys remembered as a uh you know george allen was his legendary coach and he came to the Chicago Blitz first, and he was very meticulous about everything. I mean, one of my favorite things about George Allen, lead up to the first, he, all he wanted to do was win. He was like Belichick on steroids. And um, in the lead up to the first game in USFL history, it was the Chicago Blitz visiting the Washington Federals. He had two team employees dressed in USFL windbreakers, and he gave them video cameras. And they went to the Washington Federals practices and lied and said they were part of the league film crew. And they filmed all their practices and brought them back to the Blitz so the Blitz knew everything Washington was going to do in that game and absolutely destroyed them. So that was George Allen. He was just really psychotic, and um, he was the coach of the Arizona Wranglers the second year, who are actually the Chicago Blitz rechristened the Arizona Wranglers. And one day he's at breakfast. He would have um, I don't know like 7 a.m. breakfast or whatever the hotel was, hotel restaurant was with the media during training camp, and he's he's talking with them about commitment. It's all about commitment. Everything we do is about commitment. And all of a sudden the waitress comes with his, with his oatmeal and there are no raisins in the oatmeal. And he says, where are the raisins? And the waitress says, I'm sorry, we don't have raisins this week. And he says, you don't have raisins. You don't have raisins. Get me the raisin man. Who's the raisin man? Who's in charge of raisins? And she's like, sir, I don't know. And he's like, he's like, uh, this is what I'm talking about when I talk about commitment. Someone is responsible for the raisins, and that person is ruining it for everyone. You know, he goes on this long tangent just because his raisins are missing from his oatmeal. Um, he's the same guy. He took a jog around that same time, and there was a, uh, you know, it was Arizona, and he would jog at noon when it was like 100 degrees, and they're jogging one day, and they see a dead dog carcass on some railroad tracks, and he says to the guy I'm running with, you see that? If that dog were more committed, he makes it to the other side. But there was no humor or irony in the stuff he was saying. He was just all about winning.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've heard many stories about George Allen, his detestment of uh, rookies. He was he was a veteran guy. He had no no use for draft picks and uh, and things like that when he was in the NFL with the Redskins and then later on the Rams, uh, yep. things like that. And uh, but you mentioned that the Chicago Blitz were re-prisoned the Arizona Wranglers. You want to you want to tell that story because it's probably the most banana story in that book was was not so much, uh, you know, how it happened, but that it happened at all.
2: I just want to say I have to disagree with you because I feel like in any book, when a man has his penis slammed by a trunk and is put on the disabled list, of that um, I feel like that is number one on crazy. But
1: I think so. Yeah, you might be right yeah. about that.
2: I mean, you know, I don't know about how often that happens to you, but it's never happened to me. Um, but I, I, I would say a close number two is so. at The Chicago Blitz were a, a very good team in 1983, and they made the playoffs and. The Arizona Wranglers were a very crappy team. I think the Blitz won 11 games, and the Wranglers won four, or something like that. So, um, but the Blitz were owned by a guy, a Ted Dietrich, who lived in Arizona. And he no longer wanted to fly to Chicago for the games. He just thought it was too much for him. So because the USFL was the USFL and nothing was done logically or easily, they came up with this idea that they'll just trade the rosters of the Blitz for the Wranglers. So all the Blitz players became the Wranglers. All the Wranglers players became the Blitz. And, um, it made no sense whatsoever. You're talking about wives uprooted and wives having to quit jobs and kids changing schools just because the owner the multimillionaire owner of a team didn't want to fly three hours nine times a year for games um and the funny thing is so that blitz become the the old wranglers become the new blitz, and they hired Marv Levy, the Blitz did to coach the team the second year, but nobody bothered to tell Marv Levy that he wasn't inheriting the good blitz; he was getting the crappy blitz.
0: That's so he shows
2: part. up. Yeah, he's like, what the hell is going on here? Who are these guys? And it's like, yeah, sorry. And then the new owner of the Blitz was this guy named James Hoffman, who was a, I think he was a cardiologist. And um, after the second preseason game, he's walking off the field with Dan Jiggett, one of the uh, Blitz players. And he says to Dan, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm out of here. And Jiggett is like, what do you mean you're out of here? And he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm gone. I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. It's like, what? It's like, yeah, I'm just done. I'm out. He just decided he was going to get rid of the team, not sell it, not like trade it, not whatever, hand it over to her offspring. He just dumped it. i have never sure that happened before. An owner just decided he's done and therefore leaving the team on the side of the road. But the US of ended up having to take over the blitz because the owner just left it.
1: Unbelievable. <laughs> and, you know, it's like I, I just I loved all the stories in the book and if it hadn't happened in the 80s it would almost be too crazy to believe but because it happened in the 80s when when insanity ruled uh you know you you have to be you know a lot of this stuff was believable just simply because uh of that like the fact that uh jim kelly who is now known for being one of the more courageous people he survived cancer numerous times a hall of fame quarterback a real stand-up guy and a legend in buffalo Basically, had a brothel in Houston when he was with the gamblers.
2: Yeah, it's actually you made a point that I think is really good. I get asked a lot. You phrase that really well. Like I get asked a lot: Could this have worked? Could the USFL have survived now? And the answer is there wouldn't be a USFL now because the '80s were just at this age of real excess, from you know as much steroids as you want to use without legislation to you know, the golden era of cocaine, you know, um, to alcohol being freely served to players in clubhouses after games, um, players smoking cigarettes on the sidelines, all that stuff was just, it wasn't like it was frowned upon or even confusing. It was just, it was just there. It was what you did if you were a professional athlete back then. So Jim Kelly was the man in Houston. He really was the man in Houston. It's actually funny. I I thought you were going to ask, you know, he, he was drafted by the Buffalo Bills in 1983 in that amazing quarterback class with Marino and Elway and Ken O'Brien and all those guys.
1: And, and Buffalo um, was literally the last place in the world he wanted to go.
2: Yeah, he said, he, he said, don't draft me. But they drafted him, and he's in the Bills' offices with his agent. And uh, Bruce Allen, again, the GM of the Blitz, finds this out. Someone tells him, and he calls the, the Buffalo Bills, and he, he lies, and he says he's a relative of the agent. There's a, there's a family emergency. Can he put him on? And he gets the agent on the phone, and he says, whatever you do, don't sign with the bills. We'll make you a better offer. And two weeks later, Jim Kelly becomes a Houston gambler. And he had this house that he actually bought from a teammate who's a, who had his real estate license. And I mean, Kelly was always dating a Miss Houston or a Miss Texas or someone. And he got a new car every, I think, three months from maybe Trans Am. I think it was Trans Am. And, you know, he had he had this fleet of wide receivers. They were all, like, hard partying, Super fast, uh, you know, future NFL guys like Clarence Vernon and Ricky Sanders, and Kelly would just have these huge parties. He would have the uh, back in the USFL. The weirdest thing is the opposing team's cheerleaders would travel to away games. Right. So he would, you know, the the Arizona Wranglers are in town, and after the game, the Wranglers players aren't at Jim Kelly's house, but the cheerleaders are. <laughs>
1: just. I mean, and but but speaking of of the gamblers, they were actually one of the better teams in the league because of this brand new offense that they started running back then it was the birth of the run and shoot thanks to their offensive coordinator mouse davis who i became a huge fan of because after walter payton retired in the 80s my new favorite player after him was a quarterback named warren moon who played for the oilers running mouse davis's offense and uh with the with a lot of you know speedy wide receivers down there in houston
2: yeah it's actually you know, today I was, at the, I was at the gym, or last night I was at the gym, and I was watching a video for some random reason. It was, um, it was, Jerry, it was uh, Deion Sanders and Andre Risen. There was a little documentary about them. And it was Andre Risen playing for the Atlanta Falcons, and you listen to the broadcasters, and all of a sudden they're like, and Andre Risen lined up in so-and-so. He's a big part of this run-and-shoot offense. And you realize that, that what Mouse Davis was doing, first at Portland State and then with the Gamblers, really changed the game of football. And people say that all the time as a cliche, fill-in-the-blank, change the game of football. He really did change the game of football because if you looked at offenses in the NFL back then before the Houston Gamblers, it was two running backs, a tight end, two wide receivers. Sometimes you have three wide receivers. and you take out the fullback. That's it. It was very basic. And Mouse Davis comes along, Houston Gamblers. He's putting four and five wide receiver sets. He's never using a tight end. He's oftentimes not using a fullback. Kelly's dropping back three steps and firing away. And they did this really kind of fascinating um, all-points lookout for wide receivers who were small and fast. So a lot of the guys they signed, uh, Ricky Sanders, small college, nobody. Gerald McNeil, small college, nobody. Clarence Redan small college, nobody. Um, they were just signing these guys who were like five foot eight and could run 4'2 40s. And they just threw it up and down the field nonstop. It was a freaking amazing offense. And Jim Kelly became the perfect quarterback for that.
1: Yeah, I think you, you you tweeted the other day about uh, him having 44 touchdown passes uh, in a season, which back in the early 80s was a bananas number.
2: Oh, yeah. And um, I always say this. I really mean this. The, at the time, the Bills were, were furious at the US of L. Um, it was a gift to the Bills. Because when he finally came to Buffalo two years later, you know, he wasn't going to have the NFL growing pains. He was a finished product. He was ready. He learned under Mouse Davis and he played under Jack Pardee. He, uh, you know, he really learned the game by two years in the USFL. So I think ultimately it was really a good thing for the Bills.
1: And one of the other things that really caught my attention or, or, or stuck in my head was the the Gambler's offensive line coach basically said, because you talked about, I, I mentioned the 80s, you talked about the excess of the 80s. He basically said, if you don't take steroids, you can't play for me.
2: Yeah, he actually said that you better take steroids or you're not playing. He was a, uh, he was a strongest man guy, Bob Young. He played in the Cardinals, uh, played with the uh, Cardinals in the NFL for a long time, was in strongest man competitions, was enormous and juiced out of the gills. And he would say to his offensive linemen, if you want to be on this team, you better freaking juice. So they all juiced. And uh, I interviewed one guy, one offensive lineman who told me very sheepishly, but honestly, that he was the distributor, that he would get the steroids and he would hand them out on the plane and hand them out in the facility. And they all knew this is what they had to do. And, you know, I do feel like back then in the '80s, I mean, I wrote Walter Payton's biography, and Walter Payton was popping pills left and right. That they were being passed around the Chicago Bears airplane in like a uh, like a gumball bowl, and you would just reach in and take whatever PDs or painkillers you wanted. It just wasn't thought of back then for how you know long-term injurious they would become.
1: But you know, r- real quick. I mean, this is a Chicago Bears uh, podcast, so if we could, for a moment, just want to pivot towards sweetness there for a second. Um, I heard you mention this. I think it was on Pardon My Take. They asked you about the the Walter Payton book because you said before you wrote the USFL book, Walter Payton was probably the your favorite book that you wrote or your favorite experience as far as writing the book was concerned. But that you got a lot of heat for the book when it came out because basically, and and I believe, and I was one of those people. Jeff, that was not happy about this book when it first came out because you 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 took Superman and told everyone that he was Clark Kent after all. And, you know, can you talk about what that was like when that book came out, this rewarding experience that you enjoyed so much, only to have the, the backlash that came with it there in the beginning?
2: Yeah. See, I never viewed it the way you just said. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying I never I never viewed it as taking Superman and making him Clark Kent, um, mm-hmm. because I don't think and this might be me justifying my existence. I, I guess I, I, I could see that. But I've never thought that knowing a person's hardships and even their flaws mm-hmm. makes him any less of a hero. You know, like to me, I didn't grow up a Chicago Bears fan, but I certainly grew up a kid of the 80s. In a, I mean, that was the era of Walter Payton and Earl Campbell and Freeman McNeil and Franco Harris and these great running backs. And Walter Payton, to me, was a freaking god. And I didn't feel any less about him. Uh, after that book, I truly didn't. If anything, I kind of admired him more because I knew what he went through. Um, so the book comes out, and basically what happened was – actually, the book didn't come out. I finished the book, and two weeks before it was supposed to come out, Sports Illustrated ran an excerpt. Uh, and I'm not, I am not, I don't blame SI. I, I signed off on the excerpt, but the excerpt was about the, sort of toward the end of his life when he was going through a lot of depression and infidelity, and he had a kid out of wedlock, um, and he was struggling with suicidal thoughts and threats. And the excerpt comes out um, well before the book does. And the book had been embargoed, so no one was seeing the book. So it wasn't like people who were reading the excerpt uh, reviewers could say, well, you got to wait. When the book comes out, you'll understand. It was just uh, sort of alone and isolated. And when that excerpt came out, I mean, you know, Mike Dick has said he would spit on me and some radio station near you did a book burning and Michael Wilbon went off on me and it was, there's a lot of hate and a lot of antagonism. And the only thing that has sort of made it better is that I've received a ton of, over the years, especially in the maybe year after, a lot of, you know what, man, that was actually a really good and fair book. And I, I, I jumped to conclusions. I got, got a ton of that. And I was, I was always okay with that. I understood why people jumped to conclusions. I, I, I really did. And I was kind of appreciative of people saying, you know what, I read that book and that was, that was a quality job you did.
1: Yeah, for me it was it was more about the fact that I I didn't want to know that Walter Payton was human. The only the only realization that I had that he was human was when he got sick and passed away. Cuz like you said, he was basically a hero in my eyes. My the, the first team that I followed from start to finish was the 85 Bears, the team that basically could do no wrong. And the one game that they lost that season, I had to go to bed early, so that year I never saw the Bears lose and Walter Payton was running the football and the Bears were winning championships and and all that kind of stuff those guys are still you know I mean they're still celebrities in Chicago even to this day I doubt any one of those guys has paid for a drink in the last 33 years because of what they did in 85 but you know the 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 book on on sweetness coming out and hearing that the during this hall of fame ceremony his one great fear he would hit he wasn't worried about making a speech he was worried about his wife and his mistress running into each other
2: yeah No, actually, I forgot about that one. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, um, it's weird, and I'm no different. I mean, I'm a little different now, just covering sports for a long time. But it's weird how we place such high expectations on athletes, and we really just want to know on a sort of base level that our heroes are quote-unquote good guys. It's the number one question a sports writer gets. Is so-and-so a good guy? Is so-and-so a nice person? You know, what's Mia Hamm like? What's... Tory Hunter, like, you know, you could fill anyone the blank. And, and what you people want to know is he's a good guy. He's a good guy. But it's such a vague and weird adjective to use, good. You know, like, uh, all these guys, we're all flawed. And we all have our shortcomings, all of us. Um, I just don't really, as I get older, I've, I'm not really interested in myth-making or mythology or writing. I feel like my viewpoint was Walter Payton is a historic figure in the history of, I'm double double use, sir. He's a historic figure, um, you know, in the annals of sports. And writing a biography of him is no different for me than someone writing a biography of Lyndon Johnson or Malcolm X. Um, And it's part of the responsibility of writing a biography is writing a full portrait of a person's life and really trying to understand who they were and what made them tick. I mean, that's what history is and how you learn from history. So I just think with Walter Payton, it's not the right book for people who just want to believe that these guys don't go to the bathroom, you know, <laughs> but if you want to know how someone will make someone tick, I mean, that's what a biography is really good for. I think.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I thought, uh, I mean, I, I was, um, I really enjoyed reading that book as well and, and how in depth and, and the things that I was able to learn about them. Some of the things I didn't like hearing and some of the things, you know, I was surprised to learn or, or happy to, uh, to learn about, you know, like the, The thing that I think that I knew about him even before him, but found out even more so was that basically he was willing to bend over backwards to sign autographs for kids and, and, and things like that. So it's like they almost kind of outweighed or they, they balanced each other out his flaws and his, uh, his qualities.
2: Yeah, that's a hundred percent how I feel. I mean, I actually think in a way there's something about him. I did not realize when I started that book that, that I admire all the more, which is his public image. And his sort of maintaining the idea of what people saw in him was really important to him. You know, like, he went through a ton of crap in his life. Uh, a lot of it self-inflicted, but he still did. And, and, you know, his body took a beating in football. And I, I really do believe if you if you tested his brain, they didn't do it when he died. But I I, I have to think the odds that he suffered from some serious CTE side effects are, you know, very high. Um, because he really was erratic at the end of his life. And yet through all of that, he tried treating people with dignity, and he tried being nice to people, and he was really encouraging to people, and he was optimistic to people. I just think the way he fought through that stuff at the end of his life, he lived a, his last few years were not wonderful. There was a lot of sadness, but it was always very important to him not to burden that on other people. I think that's very admirable.
1: Yeah, I mean, and one of my favorite Walter Payton stories um, was uh, a game against the Cowboys in 96, the Monday Night Football, the opening game of the season, the Bears and the Cowboys, the defending world champions, and the Bears just took them to the woodshed. I mean, really pounded the Dallas Cowboys. It was a really su- a big surprise. Happened the way it did, and Emmett Smith got hurt at one point, had to leave the game, and the first person that came and talked to him uh, after the game was Walter Payton gave him his card, told him, if you need anything, feel free to call me, you know, anything that you need, call me and, you know, I'll help you out in any way that I, I can. It's like, he didn't have to do that, but mm-hmm. he, he sought out Emmett Smith so that he could do that and be there for him in that moment where he was, you know, suffering. I mean, he left the field, he had tears in his eyes walking out cause he'd really hurt himself.
2: Right. Again, I just think, um, I just think we're all, we're all complicated, and to certain degree, varying degrees. And a guy, I used to, you know, I used to be a lot more black and white about this. Like I used to think if a guy cheats on his wife, he's a bad guy. Or if a guy doesn't sign autographs for kids, he's a bad guy. And you realize, and, and one of the sort of joys of, of this job is you get to, you try to understand why they're the way they are. Um, I wrote a book about Barry Bonds years ago. I've never seen a bigger asshole when it comes to dealing with fans or or just people in general, the media, anyone, he was just a, a jerk. But when you start digging in and you start understanding what he went through as a kid, how he was pretty much ignored by his father, how he learned from Willie Mays who could be a really vile human being, you start, it doesn't, it doesn't justify bad behavior, but it explains it. Um, and then you're like, Oh, I actually sort of understand this. I understand why he is this way or why she is that way. Um, and I feel like that's, again, that's sort of the joy of the business and why a guy like Walter Payton was such a great guy to, to write about because he was so complicated and so um, confusing. You know, he was he was a, a walking contradiction. And he was really an interesting guy to write about.
1: Absolutely. And uh, we'll use Sweetness to pivot back into the league because one of the more intriguing stories in the book for me personally was hearing that... Um, Walter Payton almost wasn't on the 85 Bears championship team because he almost signed a contract with the Chicago Blitz
2: at one point. I wouldn't say it was that close. The Blitz offered him a deal, and he sort of publicly considered it because he wanted the Bears to give him a new deal. Mm -hmm. I don't think Walter Payton was – you know, Earl Campbell met with these San Antonio gunslingers. I called Earl Campbell. I was always under the impression that Earl Campbell was going to possibly sign in the USFL. And I called Earl Campbell for the book, and he was like, no, no. I was never going to sign with the USFL. And I think Walter Baden was the same way. A lot of guys, the USFL was a godsend to a lot of players' pocketbooks because all of a sudden the Bears are competing against someone. All of a sudden the Houston Oilers are competing against someone. Um, I, I've been saying this repeatedly. Le'Veon Bell, whatever he gets from the Pittsburgh Steelers, um, it's, it's a lot more because the USFL came along and changed the way player, football players were paid.
1: Well, I mean, that's uh, the, you know basically the next thing that I wanted to talk about was the players that that helped legitimize the USFL and the money that they were getting, making the USFL an attractive place for people to actually go to. Guys like Herschel Walker and Doug Flutie and Rozier, uh, Mike Rozier, three Heisman Trophy winners back to back to back that ended up signing uh, with the USFL. It helped attract attention to the league and give players another option. Uh, for them to to play football for
2: yes but it was um it was very good bad for the usfl yeah it was the idea was slow growth and each team gets two. what happened was it really was a tipping point moment and it wasn't herschel walker it was um in the 83 season the first season the miskin panthers were a pretty ordinary team uh, bobby a looked like he was gonna be a really good quarterback anthony carter was a great wide receiver but they they, they the pass protection was terrible and the owner of the team, Alfred Taubman, basically ignored everything USFL was about, went out and signed three Pittsburgh, former Pittsburgh Steeler offensive linemen for a good amount of money. And when he did that, um, it made the Panthers really good. But it also sort of suggested to other USFL teams, well, why am I holding back? Like, what am I holding back for? If this guy's going to sign three offensive linemen, well, I'm going to sign that quarterback, or I'm going to sign that defensive back, or I'm going to sign whoever. It was a terrible moment for the league, and and... People always bring up Doug Flutie as a, as a guy from the USFL as they should. Flutie was actually a joke. I mean, it, the, the, her, Don, this isn't a Trump slant, but Donald Trump gave Doug Flutie a six-year, eight-point-three million-dollar contract. This guy was a five-foot-nine quarterback who wasn't going to be drafted in the first four rounds of the NFL draft. They just the spending got so out of hand. Um, you know, it, it just kind of proved disastrous. I think
1: that was one of the the mistakes that the USFL made that kind of did them in even before uh, Trump sort of led them down the pathway to destruction was they they started spending too quickly. Like you said, it was supposed to be a a slow growth league trying to – I mean, like every team was supposed to have like two superstars and then a bunch of regional guys that would bring the fans into the stadium to see them play. And then they in in year two, they expanded probably too big and too early as well.
2: Yeah, well, they – the original idea was maybe we'll expand by one or two teams and it was going to be, I think it was 6 million per team franchise fee. And then it was like, Oh, 6 million per team. That's pretty good money. Let's do four teams. And like, four teams might as well do six. I mean, it's really good money. So before long, you know, some of the markets were good. Houston was a good market. Um, Memphis was a good market, but then you have teams in San Antonio and Tulsa. You know, those are not grade a professional cities. Um, you know, and suddenly these teams are hiring again. The San Antonio Gunslingers head coach was Clint Mengus, guy hadn't coached college ball in eight years. There's a Texas A and I. You know, he's a guy again lost three fingers in a lawnmower accident. You know, like he was the last guy should be coaching big time football at that point. And, you know, the Outlaws were the Oklahoma Outlaws were they? You know, they're supposed to be San Diego. The owners were going to move a team to San Diego, and then San Antonio, San Diego, at the last moment, turned down their their request. So they moved to Tulsa because the University of Tulsa lied about their attendance figures in their football games the year before. They said they averaged 30,000. They actually averaged 17,000. And nobody bothered to double check to make sure the figures were right. So they moved to Tulsa and nobody's coming to the games. So this is a lot of – Pittsburgh was a nightmare. Pittsburgh was a total disaster. Fans just didn't care. So the uh, the move to expand, it was a, a short-term gain, long-term stupidity.
1: Right. and And – the one thing, one more thing before I, I, I let you go was that it was very bittersweet um to read about how, you know, or the, or the what if that that was the eighty seven NFL strike was oh, the yeah. the work stoppage in the NFL in eighty seven only a year or so removed from the the USFL folding. I mean, think about the exodus of players that would have left the league to go to the USFL just as another option of football and and how that would have forced the NFL's hand and And what could have been? I mean, do you think maybe the USFL would still be around if it had survived to the 87 season?
2: No, I think you would have had a merger between. At some point, the NFL would have absorbed a bunch of teams. Um, The funny thing about it all is in a weird way, Donald Trump was right. Like in a weird way. He, um, or let me rephrase. His whole goal was to get an NFL team for himself in New York City. And um, I just think if he held out, it would have been a possibility. The Jets moved to New Jersey. Maybe he gets a team in Manhattan. He, you know, the city agrees to build a stadium. Um, but they, they just jumped the gun, and they just got greedy and stupid and irrational. And he, they listened to him when he kept talking about fall. I mean, you know, I could, I could talk all day about it, but he, he basically just said, we need to move to fall, and the other owners believed him. And he lied about TV possibilities, and he lied about the attendance figures that were going to wait. It was just all a big lie. That's why whenever I hear him now, it's very hard for me to take anything he says seriously, because he was such a freaking liar. And the biggest one was, the biggest one, and the one that just sticks with me is, he met with Pete Rozelle, the NFL commissioner, while he was an NFL, while he was a USFL owner, to tell him he didn't care about the USFL and he wanted an NFL franchise. So when people suggest, when people say, "There's no way he he colluded with Russia," I don't know if he did or didn't, but I know he would, or at least he. He's not a man who has these loyalties where he would never do it. I mean, he literally met with the rival league to throw the league he was in under the bus. That's a fact. That's not a guess.
1: Right. And, uh, you know, that was the thing that was kind of surprising uh, to me was um, was how he basically handled was talking out of both sides of his mouth to, to the to the league about, you know, when he joined, it was the greatest thing in the world. And, you know. This league is going to take the world by storm and so on and so forth. Meanwhile, he all he cared about was using the league as uh, a means to an end to get himself a franchise in the NFL, which he seemed to be be mildly obsessed about as as making that happen.
2: Yeah, 100 percent. He's I mean, he is what he is. You know, he's just there's a book out by Rick Wilson now. Everything Donald Trump touches dies. (laughs) And I believe it. I really believe it. And I've said this throughout and I I believe this too, you could take the most conservative writer out there in America. You could take the most liberal writer out there in America. They'll have very different opinions on Donald Trump, but there's no way you can research a USFL book and come to any conclusion other than he ruined it for selfish gains. So it it was hard for me working on this book during the election um, to sort of just be like, ah, this will work out. This guy's great. You couldn't research a USFL book while this presidential election is going on and think... No, this guy, you know who would make a great president? Donald Trump. it has got to be wonderful. I love his judgment. He's going to be great. be impossible. You couldn't possibly think that.
1: I think John Barron would have a different opinion about that, though.
2: That is true. John Barron would say, Mr. Trump is fantastic, and I can get him on the phone for you.
1: <laughs> That's, I think that was my favorite, because I, I first learned about that in the 30 for 30 documentary, was the existence uh, of, of John Barron and, and who John Barron actually was. <laughs> was yep. Donald Trump serving as his own publicist?
2: Prepos- I mean... Come on. It's just like everything. Maybe I'm I'm overly sensitive to this because I am a longtime member of the media. But, I mean, of all the people to talk about fake news, this guy invented a publicist. Faked his voice. Or the other thing I just love is, you know, we're going to build the wall and Mexico's going to pay for it. This is a guy who signed Doug Flutie, promises partners that they're going to sign Doug Flutie, but the other teams are going to pay for it. I mean... It's all past his prologue. The whole thing is is past his prologue with the USFL and who he is now. It's the same exact guy.
1: And before I let you go, I just you know want to talk real quick about some of some of the other favorite little things in here in in the book. Um, was uh, <laughs> the Tampa Bay Bandit PA announcer announcing himself as the winner of the the car raffle giveaway, realizing no. that he was reading his own name on the on the on the ticket or the slip or whatever.
2: I think there was a gun. Was it not the gunslingers?
1: I thought it was Tampa Bay. Maybe it was the gunslingers. I just oh, yeah. know that I think... it was a, a raffle giveaway and the PA oh. announcer was like, Oh my God, it's me.
2: No. So there too, The gunslingers PA guy was the one who said, Oh my God, it's me. And he won his own raffle. The Tampa Bay bandits had a giveaway where they were giving away 10 cars and they had the cars running on the field. And someone just walks out of the field and steals one of the cars and drives off off the field with the car. So it's like, we're giving away 10 cars, muffle, muffle. We're giving away nine cars. It's just, <laughs> you know, they also did, the Bandits also did a giveaway where they, um, they gave one fan a million dollars. So they announce the seat, and they bring him down. What's your name? My name's Robert Smith. Robert Smith, how does it feel to be a millionaire? Oh, my God, it's the best. And they give him a big check for a million dollars. But then you read the fine print, and it's you don't start getting paid until 20 years and it's $50,000 a year until it's a million dollars. Wow. <laughs> That's the best.
1: So, yeah, I mean, it's it's filled with stories um, like that, uh, you know. And like I said, we've been talking for quite some time now. We barely scratched the surface of the stories that are actually in the book, which is why I wanted to have you on and, and, and talk about it because it's just such an amazing story with this league that was only around for three uh, – you packed – all of those stories and just came from three years. Imagine if they lasted five or ten years more, you'd have to make your own like Encyclopedia Britannica set to fit everything in there.
2: I just want to say because you had in my head, I think one of my favorite stories. It doesn't. I never get asked about, so I try to bring it up. Is um, the Boston Breakers announce I come to a contract agreement with Dave Remington, the Outland Trophy winner out of Nebraska, and they agree on the phone to the deal, and they say they're going to fly him in. So they go. The team sends officials to Logan Airport to pick up Dave Remington, and he's not there. And it turns out it was just some guy playing a trick on the team. It wasn't Dave Remington. and uh, they just had no idea. They thought they had to admit that they weren't negotiating with the real Dave Remington. I just think that's the greatest thing ever
1: so last thing, uh, before I let you go, um, all of your books are are biographies or the history of, you know, kind of thing. Have you ever thought about writing anything in? Uh, like fiction or anything like that.
2: No, but I really want to do a book. My uh, my two dream books were The Us Of L was one, and then I really want to write a, a Tupac Shakur biography. So mm-hmm. I would like to step out of sports, but I've never fiction isn't doesn't actually appeal to me as much as some people would think.
1: Because one of my, uh, I mean, it's it's still, I mean, he's still a fiction writer, but one of my favorite uh, books is by uh, John Grisham, who wrote a story called Playing For Pizza,
2: and it was about a. a I'm sorry, I don't know that. I've never heard that one.
1: Yeah, it's it's actually a, it's uh, based on it's not so much a true story, but based on a league that actually exists in Italy and in these uh, this football league out in Italy where players basically go to try to squeeze that last little bit of football about themselves, and it's about this quarterback who had a disaster of an AFC Championship game where he was basically his team. All they had to do was not screw up and and lose the AFC Championship game. They're going to the Super Bowl and he's, he goes out there at the end and throws three interceptions and gives up the game and basically has to leave the country in order to live, and, and he ends up playing in this Italian uh, football league that does actually uh, exist. So it was uh, it's actually a really great read. I, it's it's quite about 10, 10, 12 years old now, I think, the book.
2: Uh, if you I get a chance, you should uh, read, um, if you haven't read it, Loose Balls by Terry Pluto about the American Basketball Association. That's a great book. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Great book. Yeah, very that. much like this one, as far as the stories and the craziness of an upstart league.
1: Oh, I bet, I bet yeah, the NBA really was something else. Well, yeah, they revolutionized really the revolutionized yeah. the game with yep. the way that they, yep. they played and 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 whatnot. So, Jeff, I I, I really appreciate you uh, coming on and taking the time to to do the show and and uh, share some stories about the USFL and uh, talk about this book that I enjoyed uh, so much. And um, uh, congratulations again. We forgot to mention that the this passion project of yours um did make the new york times bestseller list
2: yep so uh yeah i feel good about it and i am i'm being sincere when i say this i i I always people always say thanks for coming on and i i feel like you're really doing me the favor because i'm i'm the guy promoting the book and the fact that you read it i mean that's uh i don't care if people take it out from the library or buy it or it's really flattering like uh people take the time to read something you write so uh thank you so much
1: my pleasure thanks so much uh jeff jeff perlman the football for a buck the crazy rise and crazier demise of the usfl i i got my copy on amazon i'm sure you can find it there and anywhere uh books are sold jeff thank you so much all right thanks a lot what a great talk that i had with uh, with jeff and um, you know, he's very gracious in saying that. You know, thanking me for, 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 for plugging the book and and having him on to talk about the book. But the the pleasure was all on this side uh, of the table. That was such a treat to be able to talk to him uh, about the book and and the crazy stories. And trust me, guys. You know, even though we got a good hour or so uh, of talk in about the uh, about the USFL, we really did barely scratch the surface uh, about the stories uh, in that book. I mean, it, everything from. The, the contract negotiation for Steve Young's first contract out of, uh, you know, they, they plucked him right out of BYU. He was going to go to the NFL, and instead he got, you know, pulled away. And uh, the, the crazy contract that the USFL. Uh, signed him to and and how that deal almost fell apart i mean that's a crazy story uh all on its own and there's tons and tons of other stories like that uh in the book you should definitely check it out uh it is a a great read a fun read and a fast read too because you won't want to put it down that's how crazy some of these uh stories are so football for a buck the crazy rise and crazier demise uh um the of the usfl and before i go i uh, just want to mention one more time uh the promo code is bears 25 if you want to take uh take advantage of the offer from my bookie m-y-b-o-o-k-i-e and uh, they'll match your deposit up to thousand dollars and give you that extra 25 dollars if you um make your deposit after 7 p.m eastern so you don't want to miss out on that deal and that's going to do it folks I want to thank you so much uh, for listening to this episode. This was kind of a pet project uh, of mine. I I took a shot to see if he would be interested in coming on and sure enough, he uh, he said yes, and you heard the end result of all that coming to uh, fruition. So I'm very proud to uh, to put this one out. But we are back to business on Thursday. Uh, Kevin Nogle from Siders will be on the show to help us preview Bears Dolphins for Week Six. Our beloved return to the field on Sunday in those god awful orange jerseys. The Chicago Pump. Actually, you know what? I'm not even going to use the, the. I'm not even going to give it the city name this week. They are not the Chicago Bears this week. They are the Windy City Pumpkins. That is who they are, wearing those god-awful jerseys. So for this Sunday and this Sunday only, and the actually the other Sunday we're going to be wearing the orange jerseys, the Windy City Pumpkins take their 3-1 and one record down to Miami uh, to try to take on the 3-2 uh, and two Dolphins, see if we can't put those guys on a three-game losing streak. So come on back Thursday uh, for the Week 6 preview uh, with Kevin Nogle from Finnsiders. And until then, my name is Larry D., and this has been the Bears Talk Underground. <laughs>
2: in the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit gocoastguard.com to learn more.
0: One, two, three,
1: four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on Auto Trader. They're really good at numbers. Auto Trader.